Chapter Thirteen of Saint Charles Borromeo: A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Thirteen: The Humble Ones. The canons of Santa Maria della Scala were not the only perverse and stubborn religious with whom Charles had to deal. A reformer must needs meet with opposition, for those who require to be reformed seldom relish the process and often refused to submit. Among the religious orders that at this period required a thorough and severe reformation, the principal one was the humilitati, or humble ones. This order, that was now humble only in name, had been founded in the eleventh century by a few Milanese nobles. At its foundation it was something like the third order of St. Francis, consisting of men and women living in their own homes, but bound by solemn promises to lead lives of humility, industry, and comparative poverty. A century later they adopted in part the rule of St. Bernard, and very soon a second order was formed, still composed both of men and women, and even of married couples, who lived in separate cloisters, and bound themselves to the strictest observance of religious duties and of moral virtue. Later on a third order arose. This was composed of men only, and they took holy orders and were styled canons. For some years they were very troublesome. Indeed, they were condemned by successive popes for going about preaching strange doctrines, and declaring themselves practically independent of Rome, for their rule had never been confirmed by the Holy See. However, Innocent III, recognizing that, in spite of their seeming lax orthodoxy, they really were holy and zealous men, and women, doing much good in their own way, and having a powerful influence over the people, resolved to form them into a regular order, to give them a fixed and binding role, and compel them to live in monasteries and submit in all things to Rome. This he did, the third order, consisting of ordained priests, became, as is usual, the first and most important, and those who continued to reside in their own homes were then called the third order. Their original love of poverty and simplicity was unfortunately replaced by a desire for riches and power. They became enormously wealthy, owned vast possessions in the form of commendas, prebends, etc. They had grown arrogant and unmanageable. The members were very few, and were nearly all nobles who, under the cloak of religion, led evil and disorderly lives. It was with this degenerate order that Charles had now to cope. He found them obstinate and stiff-necked, determined to hold on to their gold and lands. The archbishop applied to Rome and obtained two briefs, one of which empowered him to employ a part of the revenues of the superiors of the monasteries to found a novitiate for their order. The other gave him absolute authority to enforce the regulations he deemed necessary to effect a thorough reform. Under these circumstances, the Frati Humiliati appeared to yield, but they only apparently submitted in order to better carry out their treacherous designs. They considered that if this too ascetical and austere archbishop were sent to paradise, their troubles would cease, and they could enjoy undisturbed the possessions of which, in his too great zeal for the purity and poverty to which they were vowed, he wished to deprive them. Charles safely sent to another and better world that could return to their former easy-going, luxurious existence. They resolved to assassinate him, and for this purpose they bought over one of their own brethren, Geronimo Donato, who for the sum of forty crowns agreed to do the dastardly deed. On Wednesday, October twenty-sixth, 1569, the cardinal and his household assembled as usual in the chapel for matins. It was about half-past one in the morning. They commenced the office, the choir joining in a motet chanting the words of scripture, Tempus et revertar ad eum qui me misit. 
it is time that i return to him who sent me and when they sang non torbetur quam vestrum nege formidet let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid a loud report rang through the chapel and a sudden flash blinded the spectators donate had fired an arquebus at the kneeling archbishop a ball struck his spine a piece of lead shaved like a thimble pierced his soutane but he was not wounded he however having heard the report seen the flash and felt himself hit thought he was seriously injured though he felt no pain nevertheless he did not move but signing to the choristers to continue singing he quietly waited until matins were finished when the devotions were over they found a ball just behind him and several pieces of lead embedded in the walls there was a black mark where the ball had pierced his robe and one of the pieces of lead had actually touched his body darkening and bruising the skin he wore the mark of the bruise until his dying day the would-be murderer escaped in the darkness and for a long time was undiscovered but he and his accomplices were captured in 1570 and were condemned to death on august 11th of that year they were publicly executed donate at the moment that he passed the archbishop on his way to the scaffold had the hand that fired the shot struck off by the executioner he and his companions confessed and expressed sincere sorrow and repentance on the scaffold charles had vainly interceded for them begging the sovereign pontiff to pardon them but he was inexorable and having first degraded handed them over to the civil authorities in answer to all the cardinal's prayers and pleas expressing with the greatest earnestness his confidence that they would mend their ways if their lives were spared st pius v only replied si potest ethiops mutare pelum suum can the ethiopian change his skin the attempted assassination of the reforming cardinal in the end was the means of bringing about a good understanding between him and the governor for as it was true in the time of the apostles so it was in the days of charles borromeo so is it still in our own days so will it always be that to them who love god all things work together unto good the duke of albuquerque was stupefied with grief and dismay when he heard the news of the attempted assassination he hastened to the archiepiscopal palace cordially embraced the cardinal and united with his numerous friends and retainers in expressions of sympathy he declared he would not rest until he had brought the culprit and his accomplices to justice but charles said gently that he had pardoned the poor misguided man and that he hoped he would not have to pay the penalty of his crime adding with a slight touch of sarcasm all this solicitude of yours will be much more advantageously employed in defending the episcopal rights and the liberties of the church than in protecting the person of the bishop the governor commanded an armed guard to watch over the archbishop's safety day and night this guard charles succeeded in getting rid of after a couple of days and went about as usual going and coming alone and unprotected and continuing to allow all sorts and conditions of people to penetrate even into his bedroom at all hours whenever they had business to transact or as was generally the case when they were in need of assistance and asked for favors his friends reproached him with his carelessness telling him that it was not right to endanger a life so precious in the sight of god and so necessary to his church but charles always replied with quiet confidence i owe my preservation to almighty god he will continue to protect me what he takes care of is well guarded the joy of the milanese was great at the miraculous escape of their beloved pastor the rooms of his palace were thronged with nobles and citizens rich and poor all vying with each other in expressions of loyalty and devotion 
crowds followed him when he went out and the vast aisles of the duomo were invariably thronged when he officiated a reaction had taken place even the refractory canons of santa maria della scala were apparently rejoiced at the miracle and it was at this time that they came over in a body to the cardinal and all willingly accepted his reforms but the best result was that philip II, shocked and pained at the dastardly attempt made on the life of so saintly and irreproachable a prelate wrote to the duke of d'albuquerque commanding him immediately to revoke the edict concerning the royal jurisdiction adding that he wished all religious bodies to be under the superintendence of the archbishop and that he should freely visit and correct them he also exhorted the governor to leave no stone unturned in his search for the criminal and always to show the utmost affection for the cardinal and to protect his person with zeal and diligence the sovereign pontiff was also much affected by this cowardly attempt at assassination and wrote in the kindest and most fatherly way to his beloved son charles announcing his determination of suppressing the order of the humilitati charles pleaded their cause in vain the pope was adamant although the general of the order and the monks who had been more or less faithful through their vows went to rome and throwing themselves at his feet protested their innocence of the crime and their abhorrence of it and solemnly promised to accept all the reforms of their archbishop st pius v would not listen to them but on February 7, 1571, he issued a bull declaring the order of the Militati suppressed, and directed their comments, which numbered a hundred, to be closed. He assigned to each monk a sufficient pension to enable him to live in a frugal and modest manner, and he reserved the right to dispose of their vast possessions. Charles asked them to give their largest and most famous monastery, that of the Brera, to the Jesuits, but the Pope refused and although Charles over and over again entreated him to do so, his decision was unalterable. Ormonetto, who acted as cardinal's agent in Rome, wrote to him, It is absolutely useless for you to importune his holiness, for, when he once refuses a request, nothing will afterwards induce him to grant it. In fact, it annoys him to be asked again. However, in the following pontificate, that of Gregory the Thirteenth, Charles realized his dream and, getting permission from him, was able to hand over the monastery of the Barrera to the Jesuits, and it became under their administration a celebrated university. But in 1772 they were dispossessed by the state, who rebuilt it and turned it into a national library, a museum and picture gallery. At the present day it is a massive building with a double gallery courtile. In the center of the courtile is Canova's statue of Napoleon Bonaparte, the Bibliotheca Nazionale, occupies a part of the building, and the Pinacoteca is entered from the upper loggia, and it are many rare and beautiful paintings by Milanese, Florentine, and Venetian artists. Indeed, it contains one of the finest collections in northern Italy, but there is nothing in it of interest to a student of the life of St. Charles Borromeo. The archbishop also reformed the Franciscans. They also had fallen into a state of decadence, and had some time previously injudiciously endeavored to reform themselves, by dividing into several branches, and by reason of their separation they all became degenerate, having lost the restraining and beneficial influence of a supreme head. Charles saw that the only way to restore order and regularity was to reunite the different branches, and to found a novitiate in which the spirit of poverty, obedience, and self-sacrifice should be inculcated by word and example. With this end in view he compelled the superiors to give up all personal property, and once more the old role of having all in common was rigorously enforced. He met with some opposition, a few malcontents refusing to submit to his authority, even threatening and insulting him. 
Charles, however, treated them with such kindness and forbearance, displaying at the same time great patience and discretion, as well as inflexible determination to carry his point, that the friars repented of their insolence and insubordination, and accepted his decrees. He convoked a conference of all the members, in order to elect a father-general, and he induced the friars to renew their vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Once more the old spirit of evangelical poverty took possession of the sons of St. Francis. The ancient fervor was restored, and the penitent and reunited monks, with renewed ardor, returned to the original rules of their seraphic founder. Thus did Charles Borromeo, by tact and firmness, save from threatened destruction one of the most glorious orders of the Church, restoring it by solitary and necessary reform to its pristine splendor. End of chapter 13